Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen live on Times Radio for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode then, it's Wednesday, so it must be PMQ's Unpacked. Patrick Maguire joins me to pause the action live from the House of Commons to analyse the key exchanges between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. Uh, before that, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Wednesday, it's... The Columnists with Ali Burt, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Yes, joining us on Times Radio, we are... It's always nice, they're always both in the studio. Alice Thompson's here. Morning, Alice. Morning. And so is Robert Crampton. <laughs> Morning, man. Oh, nice to have you with us. So, uh, well, let's talk about Joe Biden. Uh, why not? He did his uh, big State of the Union address last night. I mean, he was quite punchy, I thought, all round. He seemed to, you know, if the big concern is he lacks energy and enthusiasm, right. he was quite punchy, I thought. Uh, but uh, as part of his, uh, his punchy speech, he launched quite an attack on big tech firms like Facebook. We must finally hold social media companies accountable for experimenting or doing running children for profit. It's time to pass bipartisan legislation to stop big tech from collecting personal data on our kids and teenagers online, ban targeted advertising to children, and impose stricter limits on the personal data that companies collect on all of us. Wow. So, uh, probably lots of people would agree with that, but the yeah. idea of regulating tech has been a problem for a while, isn't it, Alice? Yeah, but actually, we haven't taken it seriously, have we? So that, that we let it be the Wild West. We talked about it, but we didn't do anything about it. And I think particularly with children, that's what's interesting, that he's targeting the children and... And, and I think they have had this extraordinary time, the tech companies, when they, yeah. they started off as being the good guys, and we haven't realised quite how bad a lot of them are. And Facebook, TikTok, all of those. I mean, TikTok's the latest one that I think is really dangerous for children as well because it takes a lot of information. And gives and it to the Chinese really, Communist yeah. Party. And they're really addicted, the children, to it. Although they they, they can't insist get off they it. Yeah, right. Although Alicia Kearns, the um, chairman... Uh, she said to delete... Yeah, she, yeah. she, she said delete, And I completely agree with her. What are they getting? Because I'm, I'm on TikTok. What are they getting from me? I don't know. You're, what do you what do you do on TikTok? <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. I just so I scroll. Okay, so waste I, hours yeah, of I time. do know because my husband then went on TikTok and right. he gets uh, um, he's so he's basically sport classic male yeah. sort of sport fishing that kind of stuff. And then suddenly he got one on submissive women, and I was like, really? Ooh. And anyway, I then watched it. Of course, then he gets another one and oh, another yeah. one, and that's yeah. the problem. But you look at that, and I look at my teenage boys, and you're seeing what they're getting on this, and the algorithms just really appalling, particularly I think for toxic masculinity and that side of it, and that's. What what I think is really dangerous for children is I think they're being fed these lines and they just get more and more of what they see. 
it's, yeah. it's interesting though that Joe Biden has gone so strong on it because I mean clearly this is yeah. not just about you know a run of the mill state of the union address. We expect him to mm. finally confirm that he is running again yeah. to be president. So this is sort of second term. You know, which gives him six years to really hammer away at this. And he did sound quite passionate about yeah. it, didn't he? He sounded like he meant it. Uh, yeah, I think the tech firms have had a, a very good run. We all thought they were kind of quite cool and groovy with the Google Plex and you know, can play table tennis at work. And it turns out they were just kind of same old rampant capitalists yeah. Uh, yeah. As, you, as you as you would, as you would and expect. And also, whenever you interview any yeah. of them, they always say their children don't have a smartphone, and, it, yeah. and that's yeah. what's so terrifying is they don't let their own children uh-huh. actually do any of this, and, and yet they're pushing it all on. And our we've children. been arguing this as a paper for a long time that they are publishers, just like we are, and we are not allowed to publish things that are untrue or harmful or against the. Race Relations Act, or the you know, the, the, yeah. the, and so on and so forth. So, and they, the same should apply to them. But in, but for a long time, uh, people making that argument, which dismisses the dead tree press, and you're out of touch, and come on, Granddad, get with the program. This is the cool and groovy. But it isn't cool and groovy, is it? Because exactly. it, le- it leads it's to no, Andrew, it, it leads to Andrew Tate, and it leads to I don't know what you were saying in your column. Alice, some fifty percent of teenage boys looking at. Unpleasant. Yeah, so I, I so your, your, your column today is very timely, Alice. I don't know if you're, yeah. you're in cahoots with uh, Joe Biden. I did it all on purpose, actually. Um, but you're... I, I, I confess, reading it, I didn't know about what was going on in other countries. They're, they're so, actually... Other countries are much further ahead on this than yeah, we are. Yeah, so our problem is in Britain that we've been told that there's no way you can have age uh, verification for porn because it's too difficult and too complicated and we haven't got the tech to do it. So... That's the argument. And then the French have come up and said, well, actually, no, we are going to now make you have uh, an app on your phone that's going to show how old you are and you are going to have to use that if you want to access any porn, which is kind of extraordinary from the French because the French are normally the most laid back about that kind of stuff. The Germans have always been really strict. If you want to watch porn, you have to go down to your local newsagent and get I a license. I had no idea about this. Yeah, yeah. they they've queue up on their 18th birthday. Yeah, so they've always done that. So that's quite, you know, that's so very what, Germanic. What do you get? What do you get? You used to just get a piece of paper saying that you were allowed yeah. to watch porn. And it, just, just that, not for like alcohol and other things as well, but just specifically for porn? No, just specifically. This is specifically, they did it for <laughs> like porn. porn. And now, passport. I think they will now go on and do the same thing online. And the Brits are just way behind, and it does seem Cause extraordinary. Because we're, embar- we're embarrassed about yeah, it. Yeah, so we're too embarrassed yeah. to talk about it all. And the even French though, and the Germans aren't. Even though half the population is watching it, mm. during, especially during the pandemic. 26 million people a month were watching yeah. porn. That is extraordinary. 15 million alone on Pornhub. Yeah. And you made the uh, you made the point in your column about uh, Rachel D'Souza, who we actually we had on, uh, who's the Children's Commissioner for England, who was on the show last week uh, talking about exactly this. And someone's email, emailed in saying it's a great column by us today. Our excellent Children's Commissioner has said that we'll look back in twenty years and be absolutely stunned that our children yeah. were exposed mm. to so much harm online. I'd love to believe this to be true, but it's nearly twenty years since I was first exposed to addressing distressing content online. Yeah, why aren't we shocked now? Uh, why is it? Is it is it just because British politicians? We're reluctant to go after tech firms or we're reluctant to talk about porn? I think part of it is the porn issue, actually. So that when I talk to Lord Bethel, who is trying to um, do an amendment in the House of Lords, which will actually force um, companies to have uh, 18 verification, and he he said he found it very difficult getting men involved, and male politicians in particular. And I think some of the male politicians now will do something about it and get get there. But I think what they're worried about is all of us asking them if they've watched porn. Yeah. And I think they can joke about tractor porn and that's all a bit of a laugh. But I think when it comes to what do you watch, they don't want to ask that. And I, I think what we have to get over is adults can watch 
anything that is legal online, but we're looking at the children. That's what really matters. And that's why they should be taking it seriously. And, you know, a lot of the mums take it very seriously in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So why aren't the dads? Well, the reason worth pointing out, it wasn't actually tractor porn. It was just porn porn that Neil Parrish was looking at. He started looking at tractors. Yes. He didn't accidentally stumble across a... The, the two weren't conflated, or one no. led to the other. Yeah. So, Although we did all yeah. quite like the idea of tractor porn. Tractor porn, yeah. Uh, you know, Whereas we don't a, then a discuss looking, the more serious A good-looking tractor, exactly. Um, but, but I suppose, you know, it's a societal thing that he thought it was all right to look at porn on his phone right. in the house. And that people think it's... You say it's OK, you know, over 18, look at what you want if it's legal. But then some of this stuff is... Uh, it's legal but harmful, isn't it? I mean, yeah, well, and, who, and who wants it. to watch... And this I mean, is where the whole debate on the yeah. online safety pill is about. Quite, yeah. Should legal but harmful... I mean, is it legal, it's legal to have somewhere that a woman's being choked or sort of semi-choked during sex. I'm, I mean, I suppose that... Should that be legal? I'm not sure. So what my problem with it is that over half of it is violent and about 70% of it is about women being submissive and women being um, quite often what I would call abused. So I think actually that's what they've got to address as well. I I think Rob's right. But I I think on the whole, we don't want to ban all porn. It's just A, you want to look at what it is and B, you just you need to have more control over it. We know nothing about Pornhub. We know nothing about the people who run these companies. They're very kind of like they're in a very grey area. They don't want to be publicised. You know, it's not like with Facebook when we actually know who runs uh-huh, it yeah. or with Google. We we literally don't know are who they, these people They all are. have public affairs wings yeah. headed up by Nick Clegg or whatever. You know, there's not a former cabinet minister who's the spokesman for Pornhub who'll come on and say, well, actually, we've got, you know, you're and, right. It's like a shadowy... And you can imagine how if you were a 14, 15, 16-year-old boy with, with easy access to that, that would be an influence on you, a much bigger influence than Andrew Tate, frankly. Uh, yeah, and I, I th- think the I boys think, were know, really that, done for it. So I think yeah. the problem was that we all got very cross with everyone's invited, which was all about sort of yeah. um, sexualisation of boys and how girls were, were sort of rape culture in schools. And I think the boys were really hammered for that. And actually what we should have said is, why is this happening? Yeah. And actually, probably not their fault. It is actually the fault of the porn industry and it is the fault of what they're watching rather than themselves. And you've got, but it's not just boys now, you've got guys in their 30s, I guess, more early 40s even, who've had... A lifetime of exposure. A lifetime of on it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't know, but my guess is if you looked at the mobile phone of Wayne Cousins or David Carrick, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you yes. know, you'd assume that with the stuff that was on yeah. there, everybody can libel them now anyway, but, the, you know... I think that's the tip of the, the iceberg. The, I think that is what is, that is what is underlying. All yeah. the, I mean, that's obviously the most egregious and, and uh, horrific uh, manifestation of this, but there is... Uh, a, a, a misogynistic culture mm. yeah. stalking the country. And I think pornography is a huge mm. part of it, huge part of it. Yeah, and they'd also, I think, that when um, Rachel D'Souza was talking about, she talked to lots of young children. It was the 12-year-old that really shocked me when he was trying to have his first kiss in the playground and he tried to strangle the girl while he was doing it and he thought that was normal because he yeah. watched porn. And that just really is wow. not normal. Yeah, yeah. No. no, it's incredible. I mean, do you think that it's something that Keir Starmer could get hold of as, a, as an issue? I don't understand why he hasn't, actually, because I think it's a very good issue for Labour yeah. to look at and address, and yet they're not. So Lord Bethel said he would like to get Labour on board, but they don't seem to be coming on board on it. And and it seems very much his sort of subject, actually, and he's got the background in law as yeah. well that would really a, help. it's a brilliant red wall issue as well, because it's kind of, I mean, socially conservative, yeah. which I actually approve of in, yeah. this, in this instance. And I think the vast majority of the country would. I mean, yeah. there's not, you're not going to get much of an argument about regulating... And particularly, uh, the, it, would, it would be a proper red line with the Conservatives where all the, you know, the sort of libertarian, you know... It's would, nonsense. Yeah. Would, would, you know, in yeah. terms of politically as well. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a really good... It's a cracking column. It's the um, person who emailed in, uh, Alice. Right, let's talk about should MPs get a medal 
as if they haven't already got enough. Uh, there's a report out today calling for greater financial support for MPs who lose their seats. And as part of the recommendations, there's a suggestion that MPs should get bigger redundancy packages, vocational training during their time in Parliament, and a special event with the Speaker thanking them when they leave and getting a medal. Or a medallion, I think it actually says. It's, which, a it's even better. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, that, that's a medallion's more couple more buttons undone. Yeah, quite. Sort of about yeah, a chest. chest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, that could be their next job, couldn't it? Do yeah, it? yeah. This is Charles Walker, isn't Charles it? Charles Walker, yeah. Uh, I think. I mean, uh, we're making fun of it because it's medal. The med- medal is a silly idea. I think. That's, <laughs> I don't. The whole it's just puerile, isn't it? It's, I think it's the whole like the whole honours thing is just it's just very silly. Uh, but I suppose there is a more serious issue here. It's a particularly brutal way to be made redundant, uh, is what happens yeah. to MPs. So I guess there is some uh, argument for saying they should uh, that that passage into redundancy should be eased a little bit financially. Yes, of course they should have training. I mean, I think they should have training before they become MPs, after they've been elected, and the training to become an MP. You know, to, to what it is to be but a good I MP. I think a lot of it's better, isn't it, Alice? I thought over the years because it used to be you just sort of turned up on the day mm. and you just wandered around until you found yeah. somewhere to sit. And actually now there's a big sort of induction onboarding exercise. Yeah, before you used to be sort of told where to put your sword, and it was like really old fashioned, <laughs> yeah. and there wasn't anywhere for um, there weren't even any women's loos when I started as a, a correspondent in the. Common. So I think <laughs> it has changed, but I, I slightly disagree with Rob, actually. I think it is extraordinary that they think that that's what happens to everyone else in jobs and companies. People, when they get sacked now, when they're made redundant, they don't get leaving parties in the same way most of them, and they don't no. get medals, and they don't get clocks when they've done a certain amount of time, or <laughs> a watch. I mean, it just shows they keep saying, we want more money, or we want this. Or... They just seem to be very far removed from what other people are, are, are experiencing and going through in their jobs. And I genuinely think that most companies don't do that kind of thing. So... I think for them to want it, particularly now, and I think when Charles Walker said it's to try and get more people into politics, well, you'd get more people into politics if they behave better, mm. because actually what's putting them it's off really is the behaviour in the commons. Yeah, it's and a, then you get tarred by the you know the, the good ones get tarred by the bad ones. Yeah. yeah, and they're not being told in these inductions that actually that they should be sexist, racist, but, misogynist, and yet a lot of them are. So you know what is well, they going get sent on? on but they, they're supposed to go to training mm. on all of them. But the idea of the good ones getting tarred by the bad ones—that's what happens in an election as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can have, you, your fortunes just depend on yeah. what your party's doing and you can be a perfectly good MP. So I do have some sympathy for those people because uh, most people who lose jobs in the wider world, uh, they might see it coming a bit more or yeah. they might be through some shortcoming of their own. Whereas you can be a perfectly good MP, yeah. lose your job over, overnight. When you sort of see and, big swing. Uh, yeah. I spent some of this week because this is how I spend my evenings, watching back some of the 1979 election. Oh, cool, yeah. Uh, and you do see, you know, people who suddenly find themselves out on the way. Yeah. Um, but that does happen Shirley in real Williams life, too. It, it does happen Shirley in real Williams life. Yeah, of course, well, it, does, it does happen in real life. I mean, lots of companies yeah. go down. It's yeah, not yeah. your fault if your company yeah. doesn't, you know, if it's yeah, yeah, successful, yeah. that doesn't happen to be yeah. your fault often. And you can be out, and that, and you may have... And I'm just not sure you're going to get a better class of people applying to, to enter politics because you might get a medal at the end of it, a sort of... Well, you could do a fun no, run instead, couldn't you? I mean, particularly, and also, like, if you leave a newspaper, you get a funny front page, but yeah. you basically takes the mick and says you're a rubbish, yeah. rather than sort of <laughs> elevating it. <laughs> Hang it in the downstairs loo. Yeah. Well, in fact, talking of newspaper pages, uh, which, which brings us carefully on to the, uh, our final item. So, uh, this week, uh, Rishi Sunak tweeted, saying this afternoon, I spoke to President Erdogan and pledged the... This is after the earthquake. And pledged the UK's steadfast support for the people of Turkey. But he didn't spell it T-U-R-K-E-Y. He spelled it T-U, with an umlaut, R-K-I-Y-E. So, 
How do we pronounce that? And should we be using that instead of turkey? Well, Susie Jagger is Deputy Foreign Editor of the Times and is here to tell all. <laughs> Susie, where to begin? <laughs> so is turkey spelt the way that Rishi Sunak spelt it? Is that how, is it pronounced the same or is it spelt to be pronounced that differently? Turkey. That's very good. And again... <laughs> You could do like a like a <laughs> language <laughs> app. Very good. Oh, that was good. Well, yeah, Turkey. 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 So la- last year, um, President Erdogan said uh, he wrote to the UN and said, "We want not to be known as Turkey anymore. We want to be known as." Turkey, and the reason we want that is because that's uh, the the way that we refer to ourselves in our own language, um, and that's the way we spell it. Um, and so it was broadly seen as um, a way that uh, Turkey wants to assert its own uh, sovereignty, um, its own identity, and not have Western words used on it. Mm. Um, and he said, "I want." Um, that word to be used on uh, on labels for exported goods and in official documents and things. But the Turks are quite, um, they've been quite generous in the past. Um, so, for example, when they changed their name from Constantinople to Istanbul, um, they said that post would still be delivered if it said uh, Constantinople on the address um, and it would still be delivered for as long as um, uh, it took for uh, people to get to grips with the idea of the word Istanbul. So, what's the Times' approach? Because obviously, on the you know, we're in the communication business. If you're writing about countries, you want people to know what you're talking about. So, when do we stop calling Constantinople and switch to Istanbul? When will will the Times shift from Turkey to Turkey? Um, It's common sense. So we change um, when we think that readers uh, will recognise the new word when it becomes part of normal parlance. Um, So it's quite interesting that um, suddenly the use of the word Kiev rather than Kiev became a thing um, once uh, the Ukraine war started. So um, we'd all refer to Kiev as Kiev um, in the UK and in the West, uh, which is actually a transliteration of the Russian. But the reason that we changed to Kiev is because Kiev is a transliteration of the Ukrainian and that it was a way of um, supporting Ukraine and their sense of uh, their sovereignty, independence, and their um, joust against the Russians. Do we say Myanmar or Burma? Uh, We say Myanmar, but we say the Burmese. Right, but we resisted Myanmar for a while, didn't we? We did, because we thought that um, as, as... clever and as brilliant as Times readers are, we use the word that we think most Times readers would use at the Got time. You. Right. What about Germany and Deutschland? We've had loads of messages on why we've been talking about Germany and Deutschland. They clearly call themselves Deutschland, but we call them Germany. We don't call them Deutschland. I think that just sticks with um, uh, if you if you went to a Times reader and said, uh, "Do you refer to your holiday in Deutschland, or do you <laughs> yeah, refer yeah. to your holiday in Bavaria and Germany?" You'd yeah. use the word Germany. And it's like with the a lot of Indian cities, we check, which are basically just named in the Raj, yeah, just yeah. you know, like Bombay and uh, Calcutta. Mm. I think it's which is just sort of imperial arrogance, basically. We so say we'll pronounce it however we feel we want to, and they and it's thought, it. that, it's thought that the reason that um, we called um, we being um, uh, the Brits during colonial times, we called um, Mumbai Bombay, is because yeah. we couldn't say Mumbai. That's right. Yeah. So we yeah. sort of mumbled something with a B. Yeah, I mean, I've got a friend uh, who is sort of the least woke person I know, but he says Nepal. 
because he's he was in the Gurkhas and he, and he knows the region. Interesting. So he says it like that and it sounds a bit weird, but he thinks that's what they call themselves. He, so he's not doing it to be woke, he's doing it because to be good, well, good man. Yeah. Um, yeah. One more time then, uh, Susie. How should we pronounce in Turkey? Turkey. Turkey. Somebody's texting saying Torquay is in for a booming. <laughs> <person>. <laughs> Thank you for that, Dan. Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton then. Of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. And it's a very good afternoon to Patrick Maguire. I've not seen you for PMQ's Unpacked. Look, there 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 are literally dozens or maybe half a dozen people in Southport. Every time I go back... Uh, man of the people that I am. Yeah. They say, why haven't you been? Why haven't you been on Times Radio doing PMQs recently? So I can. So here you are. I can look down the barrel of the camera to Simon Helm in his van <laughs> and say, "Here I am, mate." Well, lots of people are tuning in on the YouTube channel. Uh, Luke and uh, Art and John, um, uh, Alex. Loads of people. Loads of people. Um, yeah, let us know where you're tuning in from. Oh, here we are. Here are all the hellos. Candy of an upstate New York, Craig in Cape Town, Richard in Fleet. Richard, I met Richard. He um, he cornered me outside a shop. Me had a selfie. Really? Yeah, luckily I wasn't doing it. I wasn't, like, buying anything embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I assume that's the same one. Anyway, uh, hello, Richard. Uh, get on the YouTube channel if you want to watch along. Um, we will come to the first exchanges with uh, Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak in just a moment. But... Because President Zelensky is in Westminster, he's uh, in the Houses of Parliament. We don't think he's watching PMQs, so we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, let's just hear what uh, Rishi Sunak said in his opening statement. Prime Minister. Yeah. Yeah. Mr Speaker, I'm delighted that President Zelensky is here in the United yeah. Kingdom today. Yeah. It is a testament to the unbreakable friendship between our two countries, and I'm proud that we are expanding the training for Ukrainian forces to include jet pilots and marines and ensure that Ukraine has a military able to defend its interests today and into the future. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. 
And uh, looking at uh, the pictures from the uh, Commons Chamber, Patrick Maguire, everyone wearing uh, the British Ukraine uh, badges. We were talking about badges this week with uh, Daniel Finkelstein. In fact, Keir Starmer's wearing one. Rishi Sunak isn't. I'm not sure where we should read into that. I'm probably not sure that it was Zelensky. Well, you know, there, there are certain members of the Conservative Party who think Rishi Sunak is soft on Ukraine, so I'm sure that'll launch a thousand conspiracy theories. It's interesting. I suspect Keir Starmer, with the, judging on the conversations I've had with Labour people this morning, is going to use this opportunity not to try and score partisan points, but bring the House together, pose as, uh, you know, statesman in waiting. But also, you know, there are doubts about whether Rishi Sunak's actuarial approach to policymaking will mean the UK makes difficult and unpopular decisions in Kiev about its commitment to Ukraine, whether its commitment to Ukraine is conditional on the fiscal situation in this country. So it'll be interesting to see whether Keir Starmer tries to outflank him on that, but I suspect we'll see Keir Starmer devote all six of his questions to Ukraine here. Interesting as well. It's quite a moment for, for Rishi Sunak, getting on the front foot a bit. The whole time he's been Prime Minister, has been you know, clearing up the economic mess, in a pickle over strikes, in a pickle over Nadim Zahawi, Gavin Williamson, and actually a bit of... Being the Prime Minister, welcoming Zelensky to Downing Street on the steps of Downing Street, is one of the first major world leaders at all, I think, to come and visit him of any great... No, there'll be someone I've, very important I've missed. Uh, and then going out and seeing some big, expensive military kit. And, you know, that's part of the job of projecting your role as being Prime Minister, not just dealing constantly with crises. Yeah, and it's, look, it's unquestionably a good news story for Rishi Sunak, both on the national stage but also within the Conservative Party, that President Zelensky still judges the UK, despite the departure of Boris Johnson, his his friend and, and foremost ally in the among Western leaders, that Zelensky still makes the judgment that the UK is his most steadfast ally in the West, given that he is uh, blindsided the EU by coming here before he visits Brussels tomorrow. Well, there were loads of you online already watching along. Do If you are watching along, put it on your social medias. Tell your friends. Tell your friends to get on the YouTubes. Uh, go to the YouTube.com. Not the YouTube. That's not a website. Go to YouTube.com. Search Times Radio. Uh, and you can find us there. Hi from Austria, says Edwin. Love the show, Matt and Patrick. Uh, hello from sunny Shropshire, from SE20, and from SE21. Very close to each other. Enfield, Marrakesh, Croatia. You're all there watching along on the YouTube channel. Here we go, then. Let's go live to the House of Commons. It's question number one from Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Over 11,000 people have died as a result of the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and that number is sadly rising. And I know many families here in the UK will be anxiously awaiting news. I'm sure I speak for the whole House in saying our hearts go out to each and every victim and their families but we must do all we can to support the rescue and recovery effort. Mr Speaker, this House is honoured to be addressed today by President Zelensky. From the outset of the war, he has symbolised the heroism, the resolve and the bravery of his people. The Prime Minister and I joined this House together in 2015. We've lived through important moments in our domestic and international politics. But none of those experiences compares to the pain and suffering of the people of Ukraine. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that, right across this House, it is vital that we all continue to stand together in full support of Ukraine? Prime Minister. Well, can I first join with uh, the Honourable Member for paying our respects and thoughts to the people of Turkey and Syria? 
particularly those affected by the earthquake and the first responders who are doing such a valiant job. The House will be reassured to know that we are in touch with the Turkish and Syrian authorities in providing all assistance that they have required of us, including 77 search and rescue responders that arrived yesterday and have already begun work. And I spoke to the President yesterday to ensure that we are in close communication. Uh, and can I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his comments on Ukraine. It's something that not only the whole country can be proud of, but the entire House can be proud that we came together to stand by Ukraine when the moment mattered and that we will continue to stand with them united as one parliament and one united kingdom. So let's just jump in there, uh, as we always do, pausing the action, uh, Patrick. You're completely right that Keir Starmer really sort of bringing the House together uh, and trying to put himself right alongside Rishi Sunak. It's something that hadn't occurred to me before. They both became MPs in 2015. And there's, you know, there's an age gap. Rishi Sunak's 42 and Keir Starmer's 60. But um, it's, it's sort of interesting that they, they've only been MPs for the same length of time. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And, you know... And they're both sort of new entries to politics as well, despite Keir Starmer's um, lengthy record of public service um, as a barrister and as the director of public prosecutions. Both sides of the House would admit they are sort of political neophytes. And it's, um, yeah, it's certainly interesting in that respect. But Keir Starmer's rhetoric there, um, you know, as I was saying, it's not at all partisan yet. I suspect we might see towards the end of this line of questioning Keir Starmer try and draw out Labour's own defence policy, which his aides describe as pretty hawkish. We can expect some pretty hawkish lines from Keir Starmer at some point during this exchange. Um, but for the time being, it's very careful, yeah. very considered, very statesmanlike, you'd say, from, from both of them. And it, But there's an interesting question, isn't there? And it, we spoke to um, Stuart MacDonald earlier on, an SNP MP, who actually went to Ukraine last year and met Zelensky. And he was making the point that time and again, we've said, no, we're not going to send this type of missile. And then we've ended up doing it. We're not going to send tanks. And then we've ended up doing it. There's currently debate about whether or not we should send jets. And you, it's, it's a reason why I don't know what the answer is. But if we'd done all the things we are doing now, all of them six months ago, would that have made a material difference to the outcome of the war? And, look, and that is a really interesting question. And it it speaks to a broader point about Rishi Sunak's political style. And obviously that sort of period of, you know, Western introspection, debate, and then giving the Ukrainians what they asked for a month ago is partly a consequence of all the moving parts yeah. in the Western alliance. But you could also make a point about Rishi Sunak there, is that he seldom makes a decision if it's not coming from a defensive crouch. You know, you saw that even yeah. over furlough and, and lockdowns and all of that stuff, it was preceded by a lengthy period of time. Nadim Zahawi, another one, a lengthy period of time where he was facing criticism. Now, it'll be interesting to see if Keir Starmer, like Boris Johnson, it's not often you see Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson take the same line in anything, call for the Prime Minister to do more immediately. It's really interesting. And actually, you know, so we talk about Boris Johnson domestically, but he was right from the very beginning full square with uh, Ukraine, far, far ahead of other European countries. So we... And, and that's, why, that's why it's a very difficult thing for Number 10 to fight back against Boris Johnson. You can't say, look, it's a welcome corollary for Boris Johnson that he gets all this uh, publicity and, and people like you and I are referring to him in, in favourable terms. But it's hard to argue that this is an ego trip for Boris Johnson. Yeah, because yeah, or, or a, becoming, you know, a belated bandwagon exercise. Uh, well, let's go back to the House of Commons then. Uh, this is PMQ's Unpacked. Question number two from Keir Stubber. The record is the right honourable. Uh, that's just thank Lindsay you, Hoyle pointing out that Keir Starmer is the right honourable Every gentleman. time Putin has been appeased... We'll explain why in a minute. ...he's been back for more. Exactly. And so does the Prime Minister agree with me that across this House we must speak with one voice 
and say this terrible conflict must end with the defeat of Putin in Ukraine. Mr Speaker, our objective remains to ensure a Ukrainian victory in this conflict. Vladimir Putin's aggression cannot be seen in any way to have been successful, and that's why we have accelerated and increased our support militarily for Ukraine this year. It's a decision that I took as Prime Minister. Today we are going even further, not just having provided Challenger tanks and being one of the first countries to do so, which catalyzed the provision of tanks from other nations as well, but also today to move to start training Ukrainian Marines in the advanced capabilities they will need to mount further offensive, but also to train their pilots on advanced combat aircraft. So the House can be reassured we will continue to support Ukraine to ensure decisive military victory on the battlefield this year. Interesting. Decisive military victory on the battlefield this year. Mm. That's setting a quite a potentially high bar because there are lots of people who want Ukraine to win this, but no less confidence about how or when. The, the timescale. It's, and it's interesting as well, right? That was very much the flip side of the other striking statement Rishi Sunak made there, which was a decision I made. He mm. was saying it, it's not a case of I've inherited Boris Johnson and Liz Truss's policy in this. Yeah. He said, I have made a decision to spend this money now. But you wonder, decisive military victory this year, does that leave the door open if you are, say, Boris Johnson or Vladimir Zelensky listening to this? to the possibility that the UK in a year's time says, well, look, we've put all our our eggs, all our cash in the basket marked Ukrainian victory this year. That's not happened. What's the outlook now? Is it time to start looking at negotiated settlement? We are, you know, we're leaping way ahead yeah, yeah, yeah. of this session in PMQs, but th- these are the questions people listening will be asking. Uh, just on that uh, intervention from Lindsay Hoyle, uh, because we, we, we've got the preeminent Lindsay Hoyle impressionist, impressionist <laughs> here in the studio with us. Uh, what was the point that Lindsay Hoyle was making? Well, look, on this solemn occasion, I'll keep my uh, Lindsay Hoyle impression in my back pocket, but uh, <laughs> Keir Starmer is the right honourable gentleman, as is Rishi Sunak, because they're both members of the Privy Council. So if you're an MP, you're addressed as an honourable member. If you're a member of the Privy Council, you are uh, right honourable. Actually, technically, you should be saying of Keir Starmer, my right honourable and learned friend, as Keir Starmer is also a, also a barrister in KC. Absolutely right. There you are. You don't get that on the other side, do you? Right, let's go back to the House. Well, I don't know whether that's when a barrister is addressing a barrister. I'm sure uh, an Erskine May expert will, will get in touch to tell us. Well, get Rishi Sinat's not a barrister. No, I know, I know, oh, I know. I see. So, yes, if you're, if you're a barrister, then you might not consider the other one learned. Yeah. Somebody get Jeff- Jeffrey Cox on the phone, he'll know. Uh, <laughs> if we'll have a whip round could, first. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> a whip round and if we can afford to ring the British Virgin Isles anyway. <laughs> yeah, see so we can find a landline that can dial uh, international numbers. Uh, right, uh, let's go back to the House of Commons. This is question number three from Keir Stubber. Mr Speaker, can I welcome the additional support the Prime Minister has outlined today? I've had the privilege, I'm sure he has, of seeing firsthand the brilliant work our military is doing in Salisbury to train Ukrainians in defending themselves. We all support this work and the UK's role in the international drive to ensure that Ukraine has the weapons and the technology required to defend herself. Does the Prime Minister agree that continuing this international effort is the only way to ensure Putin's defeat? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, the the House may not uh, all be aware that actually we have 
continue to train Ukrainian soldiers because it's something that we have done for years before the conflict started and something that we should be very proud of. But obviously we've intensified those efforts. Last year we trained 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers through Operation Interflex. This year the Defence Secretary announced that last year we'll be training 20,000 Ukrainian soldiers in addition to the Marines and Air Force pilots that I mentioned earlier. Uh, But the Right Honourable Gentleman is right to highlight this has been an international effort. One thing that is a mark of UK leadership in this particular area is that around a dozen other countries have all come here to the Ukraine, uh, to the UK, to take part in our training programmes to support Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, many people, uh, many members from around this house, will have visited uh, in their constituencies that effort. It's something that's making an incredible difference on the ground, and I know something that the President Zelensky is incredibly grateful for. Yeah. I mean, it's all still an outbreak of uh, of cosy consensus. I'll just find one point of difference. Uh, I don't think Rishi Sunak has been to Salisbury to see the work of the military. So is Keir Starmer brandishing his uh, his um, I don't know, putting his putting his fatigues on, yeah, putting his fatigues on. In fact, the only evidence I can find of Rishi Sunak going to Salisbury was he went and watched the women's Euros in a Salisbury pub, uh, a pub called the Bishop's Mill, which I think I watched uh, England uh, the men's Euros. I went and saw the first England game in that, in that very pub. Oh, really? Anyway, that's the that it's a side point. But but it, what we're seeing here is uh, Keir Starmer, lit, not quite literally putting his fatigues on, but making the case for his, his role as a statesman. So far from anything we'd have expected. I suspect Rishi Sinat won't go here himself today. But so far from anything we'd have expected from, from, uh, from Jeremy Corbyn. No, from Jeremy. Uh, yes, of course. Who you know? Remember when he did an interview with uh, John Pienaar on this station last year? Um, was unwilling to even say whether he admired President Zelensky in a very Corbynish answer when John Pienaar posed that question to him. He, his answer was, well, I've never met President Zelensky. You know, so you expect that the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn has a very different line throughout this conflict. And, look, and that is part of the reason Keir Starmer is doing what he's doing today. There are a wealth of domestic issues he could go on. He could have even uh, constrained this to his very first question, you know, yeah, his opening remarks saying... You know, great to see President Zelensky here anyway. Let's talk about levelling up or strikes or another Keir Starmer wants to talk about strikes. But, you know, talking about the NHS crisis or whatever, um, that Keir Starmer is going very hard on this is a reflection of the fact this PMQs would not have happened at any point up until 2019. It's really interesting. Yeah, just looking back at what Jeremy Corbyn said uh, when he was on Times Radio last year, said he hoped that NATO would be ultimately disbanded, saying that military alliances create greater danger in the world. And I think he was saying something similar uh, only last week as well. So um, yeah, there's a big, there's a big, there is a big gulf between Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, right, let's go back then to the House of Commons. This is question number four from Keir Starmer. Starmer, I think the whole House would like to thank those involved in the incredible training that is going on. Mr. Speaker, before I entered this House, I had responsibility for fighting for justice in the Hague for victims of Serbian aggression. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that? When the war in Ukraine is over, Putin and all his cronies must stand at The Hague and face justice. Prime Minister. Mr Mr. Speaker, the Royal Gentleman is absolutely right that we must hold those to account for the horrific crimes that they have committed. Uh, I'm proud that the United Kingdom has played, again, a leadership role in this regard, being one of the first countries to provide financial 
and technical support, putting investigators on the ground. We're surely to be hosting a conference together with the Dutch. Uh, and also, one of the things I discussed with President Zelensky this morning is our support for the work of the ICC, where, thanks to the efforts of UK members, I'm hopeful that we will, we will see the first indictments very shortly. Keir Starmer really ratcheting up the, uh, um, the, the rhetoric, the, the hard-line position he wants to be seen to be taking against Russia. Also, for, I think that's the first hint of partisan posturing from Keir Starmer there. In the, he's, you see the bones of his election pitch. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not a... Just his pitch for Labour leadership was, hey, guys, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lefty human rights lawyer who, you know, stood four square with Swampy and the Green and common marches. Now it's... I've prosecuted every terrorist you could hope to imagine. I've been in the Hague prosecuting war criminals. Um, you know, back me and I'll take a similarly lock hard up, line lock, on the lock bad. Up yeah. Putin. yeah, burn them yeah. and flog them. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Really interesting that he's he's going on that so hard. And again, the thing we've discussed the last few weeks at PMQs is uh, Keir Starmer is a sort of transformed man, having started the year so comfortably ahead in the polls. He's got a bit of self-confidence. He doesn't need to worry about the, the left-wing, you know, Corbynite still in a, his party. You might have got cross about this. Uh, he doesn't, you know, because he's got more confidence, he's, he's just, um, he's willing to stake out his position a bit more rather than constantly triangulating, which is what he thought of doing this time last year. Yeah, two things people who know Keir Starmer well tell me every time I lunch them or go for a drink with them or go for... Um, go for a coffee with them uh, and I put this question to to them I make that exact point Keir Starmer seems like a different man to the one who uh, you know looked like he was releasing hostage videos in the wake of say the Hartlepool by-election victory just under two years ago and they all say he is a man for whom confidence is everything and he hates he hates losing and now he's convinced that the Labour Party can and probably will win which explains why he is so assured and confident in these in these parliamentary encounters if the polls narrow that is the test though if the polls narrow over the coming year as Labour people suspect they will or at least give lip service to the idea that they will let's see if Keir Starmer and the Labour Party can hold their nerve and whether he seems so assured in PMQs in six or eight months time well we know he hates losing because somebody wrote a very good column this week about his uh, uh, his his concern about Arsenal being so far ahead and then they lost Yes, Keir Starmer has been refusing to countenance, even in casual conversation, the idea that his beloved Arsenal, uh, you know, last seen in their pomp in the late 90s and 2000s, uh, I'm sure you can see where we're going with this one, <laughs> listeners, uh, refusing to countenance the idea they can break that habit of two decades and finally win. And he was been, he's been saying this for weeks, saying, you know, it's only halfway through the season, a lot can happen yet. And... Uh, you know, as if on cue, as if to prove his point, Sean Dyche's Everton, unfashionable Everton, that hapless, hopeless, <laughs> incoherent team in blue. <laughs> A route one attack. Could I, to be clear, these are the views of uh, Patrick Maguire. Uh, 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 Liverpool season ticket holder Patrick Maguire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, <laughs> beat, beat Arsenal one 0 as if to prove Keir Starmer's point. Absolutely, which was a, which was the subject of uh, Patrick's excellent column in the Times on Monday. Uh, right, let's go back. There. The, the team the, is the red team against the blue team. It's Keir Starmer. Question number five. Mr. Speaker, across this house, we don't just hope for Ukraine's victory; we believe in it, and part of that victory must be Ukraine's reconstruction. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that Russia should pay for the destruction it has caused through the wealth lying dormant in blocked Russian government assets? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, we are the third largest 
uh, humanitarian and economic donor to Ukraine, £1.4 billion of support that we have provided through direct grant assistance and guarantees at multilateral lending organisations. And again, the House will remember we took a lead in imposing economic sanctions on Russian entities, including individuals and state-sanctioned assets. We have ensured the provision of funds here uh, will be put in a foundation for reconstruction in Ukraine, and we are currently working with international partners through the legal process to use those assets to fund Ukrainian reconstruction. Of course, that is something that we all want to see, and we are working with our partners to achieve that. Um, the uh, comments on the uh, YouTube uh, page are, well, people are very cross about football. Oh, really? Uh, Gunners, uh, that is a steaming part of Tottenham Hotspurs, steady on the Everton trashing... Um, well, it's interesting. Keir Starmer's director of communications, Matthew Doyle, is a massive Everton fan. So I, I suspect on uh, on Monday morning there was some listening, frosty. When he's listening back to this on the podcast, he'll um, he'll take issue with this. No, I'm sure he will. He, he you know, uh, that I, I it was I was made aware of uh, you know. Um, disagreements with my description of Everton <laughs> at the very top of the Labour Party, shall we say. Um, but, I mean, you know, to, oh, to be a fly on the wall in Labour's Monday morning meeting after Keir Starmer, uh, um, I mean, I was surprised that comes is still in the job, the devoted Evertonian that he is. But anyway. Interestingly, some people say, Rachel's saying, total waste of PMQs, easy ride on the reshuffle. John says, total waste of time. Uh, someone else saying, uh, does the right honourable gentleman agree with me that one plus one equals two? Is it a total waste of an opportunity from Keir Starmer or does he actually just you know tonally doing this occasionally someone says when was the last time uh, PMQ's focused entirely on foreign policy does he just have to do that sometimes? That's a really, it's a really interesting question. Look, I suppose there are two questions here. There are a question of party politics. The party political incentive for Keir Starmer here is obviously to remind voters again and again and again, this is what Keir Starmer's people want to do and Keir Starmer wants to do, remind them they are not the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn and that they can be trusted on defence. Um, so clearly, as much as it's probably tedious for listeners who are after political theatre, it's uh, it's clearly it clearly makes sense. So it's you know it's it's a no brainer in party political terms, and it goes to the heart of the thing that we keep getting on our focus groups, and I know the Labour Party do as well. It's the complaint that all Keir Starmer does is pick fault and complain, and with Captain Hindsight, all that still keeps cutting through. And so actually, you know, being supportive, constructive, statesmanlike is addressing one of the perceived weaknesses of even people who say that they're going to vote Labour. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, if President Zelensky is in the UK and he has flown to the UK uh, and made the UK his first visit and the Labour Party's stated position is, well, yes, we agree with the government on Ukraine, it would be strange if they, they chose to repay yeah. President Zelensky's considerable risk in coming to the UK in saying, well, hang on, we're actually going to talk about something else. It's a, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big occasion. You know, it's President Zelensky's only, only his second visit. Do we know if Starmer's going to meet him? It's a very good question. Well, let's try and find out in the next uh, couple of minutes as we go back to the House of Commons. Uh, this is question number six from Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As a country, we've always been at our best when we stand up to tyrannical aggressors threatening their neighbours and peace on our continent. That's why the Labour Party helped found NATO and why our commitment to NATO is as unshakable today as it was back then. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that whatever differences we may have, no matter what difficulties we face as a country, we in this House have a duty to stand on the shoulders of giants who came before us and support Ukraine's fight for freedom, liberty 
and victory. Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, we remain the leading European ally in NATO, as we always have done. Uh, we continue to increase funding in our armed forces by £24 billion at the last spending review to ensure that we maintain not just our NATO obligation to spend 2% of our GDP on defence, but also we participate in every NATO operation and remain the leading nation when it comes to contributions to NATO's Rapid Response Force and the NATO Readiness Initiative. Uh, But I join with the Right Honourable Gentleman in saying that this House and this country will stand united with with Ukraine until we ensure the defeat of Vladimir Putin's unprovoked, unsanctioned aggression and that we will make sure that Ukraine is not only victorious, but that we bring peace to its people. Well, that was interesting. Uh, Labour helped found NATO and uh, we have always supported it, which might come as a surprise to anyone who paid any attention to the Jeremy Corbyn years, which Rishi Sunak sidestepped, pointing out that Keir Starmer sat in the shadow cabinet of the NATO critique. Well, it's an interesting point of tension internally, a minor point of tension, not to, to, you know, blow up every sort of... Uh, tense water cooler conversation in the leader's, leader's office in the Labour Party into a massive crisis for Sir Keir Starmer. But it's interesting, an interesting sort of point of tension is those who were there, the few people who were there during the Corbyn years who are still there, often get quite annoyed when uh, Labour take this line um, or, you know, they lean into the idea that Jeremy Corbyn was a massive aberration on foreign policy and, um, you know, Labour is back in a sensible place. Now, it's certainly true that Labour's defence policy is much more hawkish than it was under Cor- Jeremy Corbyn. That's uh, incontrovertible. But if we were to have Emily Thornberry in this studio, she would say, probably say, or, you know, probably not Emily Thornberry in the studio, but Emily Thornberry, uh, you know, if you bumped into her in the street and asked her about this PMQ, she may say something like, well, hang on, think of how much worse Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy could have been if me and Keir Starmer weren't around the table arguing for them not to take positions over Salisbury uh, or, or whatever. Um, so it's interesting. Like, I, and I think you can sort of just about square Keir Starmer saying, well, look, it was Clement Attlee's government that founded NATO and we've always supported it. You can mount the argument that, you know, even when Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy was at its most controversial, at no point did he ever advocate as Labour leader withdrawing from NATO or abolishing Trident. Now, obviously, those views, his, his historically yeah, yeah. held views... Although, I mean, famously, over, over Salisbury, he, did he was say, willing to give Russia the benefit of the doubt and said that we should send us a, a sample of the nerve agent so that Vladimir Putin could tell us whether or not it was one of his. Yeah, and, and look, even the likes of uh, Andrew Murray his, is one of his advisors, and, and lots of people who were with Jeremy Corbyn, friends of Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn at the time, now look at that and say that was the point at which we yeah. lost decisively the 2019 election because we just sounded, you know, we sounded so out of tune with the public and any recognisable idea of consensus in British foreign policy. Uh, well, Scott uh, has messaged in, why are they pretending that the UK is in turmoil because Zelensky's in the country? Much prefer them ripping shreds out of each other. Hashtag politics with the boring bits. I mean, it's the one bit of the show we don't have any control over, Scott, so we can't, we, can't, we don't know what they're going to talk about uh, up until that point. But uh, an, interest, an interesting moment, I think, for Keir Starmer's uh, leadership, if nothing else. Uh, it's all been kicking off on the YouTube channel uh, because uh, the, mod, the moderators have bumped someone off who was spamming pro-Russian nonsense, so... They're all saying, well done, Times Radio. Thanks, Times Radio. I thought they really like our analysis, Patrick. It's not. They like the fact that someone's blocked an account out there. So That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 